Good morning, friends. I want to talk today for just a few minutes about empty threats. And so if you've got a bulletin with you, go ahead and look on the back of the bulletin. On the back of the bulletin, it says empty threats, Acts 4, 21 to 31. And so you're going to want your Bibles uh, or the, app, the Bible app on your phone. Get that open to Acts 4. Uh, I'm preaching a little bit of a different way today. You guys know I like to preach sermons in different ways. So today I'm not putting anything at all on the screen for you. I want to make a very simple appeal from Scripture, okay? A very simple appeal from Scripture. And as you know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at implications of the resurrection. Implications of the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead, and at Easter we celebrated this. We celebrate it every week, but we paid special attention to the resurrection We talked about Peter and John running to the tomb. We talked about how they believed when they saw the evidence of resurrection. His body wasn't stolen because nobody would unwrap a body that was dead and bloodied and smelling and leave the linens laying around and take time to fold the face cloth and set it on the right spot there. Nobody stole the body. Jesus was raised from the dead. And even though... It says that they did not yet understand from the scriptures that he had to be raised from the dead. When they saw those linens, something came to life inside of them that was called faith. Something came to life inside of John and inside of Peter that morning. Okay, Now these were real men, John and Peter. Like you and I, they lived with threats in their life all the time. Different kinds of threats. Okay? And today we're going to talk about a threat that was leveled at John and Peter, the same two guys who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus through the linens laying on the ground. Later in their life, when they became old men, Peter and John would write documents we call letters or epistles, and one of them wrote a document we call the Revelation They would write these things because what happened on that one morning had implications for their whole life. Changed the way they looked at everything. What happened that day had implications for the rest of their life. They spent their life talking about it in the face of threats, but they did it without becoming people who threatened. Okay, this is really important. This is the simple plea from Scripture. They spent the rest of their life talking about that morning in the face of threats. And they did it without becoming people who threatened. Okay, I want to talk about a threat of Christianity, a threat against Christianity this morning. And we're going to come to this scripture and see how it works. Here's a threat against Christianity. Right now, 2019 America, you all know that there's a lot of people that think Christianity is a joke. They think that what we know happened on Easter morning didn't happen. They think Christianity is a joke. Okay. And here's a way that it gets expressed. A couple of ways. People leave churches, they leave faith communities around the country, and they often say one of two things. Now you can write these down if you want. Uh, the first one is this. They look at churches, okay, they look at churches And they say, because there's some churches out there, don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, 
So they kind of get relativistic. Okay, and you can write down this word, relativism. Write it down, relativism. What do you do when people say your faith is a joke? Christians have become oppressors. They became people who threatened others. Some churches become relativistic. It's hard to tell even what the truth is anymore. Okay. Today I want to make some simple appeals from Scripture. Okay, there's some places, some faith communities that don't do that. They don't make appeals from Scripture. Whatever you think goes, whatever your core truth is, is okay. We don't want to you know, oppose anybody's core truth. Well, what happens with relativism? There's no absolute truth, right? Nobody's truth can be wrong, so there's no absolute truth. Literally, faith becomes meaningless, okay? Literally, faith becomes meaningless. To be meaningless is to have no meaning. I know this is a, I'm doing a really good job expounding that, you know, Webster's Dictionary defines meaningless as. To have no meaning. That's, that's what relativism is is when we no longer say that there's any meaning or we no longer know what, what meaning is. Okay? It's just one thing that happens in faith communities. And people, people in America today are abandoning Christianity because of that. Because Christians in some places don't seem to stand for anything. And, and they don't know, they don't even seem to think that the scriptures stand for anything. Okay? But there's another one that might be a little more relevant to us. Another reason that people are threatened by Christianity and leaving faith communities. And that would be moralism. So write this down too. Moralism. Okay. Moralism. What does that mean? Well, moralism is almost as opposite of relativism as you can get. Moralism is a belief in some things, a deep belief, a conviction that things are true. Okay. We need to have a conviction that things are true. Even relativists have convictions that things are true. They just don't want to tell you what they are because then they become oppressors. Moralists are happy to tell you which convictions they believe are true. The problem is, and the reason people are walking away from faith communities, is that so many times in history, because we deal with fears, we have these truths, but we use them like a club to bludgeon people. And when I say we, I'm not saying you, I'm not saying me, although maybe I should. Because if I was being honest and fair this morning with myself, there have been times, both as a child and as a young man, okay, and even recently in my life, when because I was afraid, I didn't respond, I didn't share my truths with kindness, with love, and, and from Scripture, but I bludgeoned somebody with them. And it usually comes from fear. Okay, So you've got these two words, these two poles, relativism and moralism. The one doesn't want to say that there's truths and hurt anybody's feelings. The other one often tends to leak over into beating everybody to death with the Scriptures. I mean, we talk about it, like the joke in churches is like the pulpit pounders, right? Well, we've, we've got a good solution for that. We have a pulpit that does nothing, you know, I mean, very little. It's not impressive if I pound it. So I can't really bludgeon that way, right? But here's some ways that I could do it or that we could do it, right? You can bludgeon people by judging them. You can bludgeon people by threatening them over and over. It's as if your only message for them is hell, right? That's the only message. It's an important message. 
But it's not the only message. And we bludgeon people whenever we nitpick doctrines and theology to the point where nobody else is acceptable to us. We're the only people who have theology right, probably the only ones going to heaven and so on. You've all seen it. You all know that these things happen. The question is, what is this event from Scripture with Peter and John going to do to help us to find some middle ground? Okay, what is the way to deal with the fact that right now in our country people are just leaking out of churches in droves because churches are having trouble finding some what is the true middle ground? And I want to just make a simple appeal and a proposal to you, okay? What if our absolute truth is a man who died for his enemies? What if our absolute truth is a man who died for his enemies? He did not return violence for violence, but forgave them. What if the thing that we cling to and we hold to, like Peter and John, is that in Jesus we have found an absolute truth that will not turn us into oppressors and it will not allow us to be weaklings. In Jesus Christ, we find the one person who looked fear in the eyes don't you remember the garden? Don't you remember the story about the garden, the events of that night when he sweated so profusely? It was as if, or it actually turned into, drops of blood falling off of him. He looked fear in the eyes. He's the author of life. You think he doesn't understand the implications of death? He understands it better than you. And he looked fear in the eyes, knowing everything that his enemies would do to him, and he died for his enemies, not returning violence for violence, but forgiving them. And here we come to Acts chapter 4 with Peter and John. And they believe this absolute truth. Peter and John believe that what happened on Friday was Jesus laid his life down to die for the people who were the most opposed to him. And that on Sunday he was raised to bring all people from those who loved him to those who were his enemies in reconciliation back to God. And so we come to Acts chapter 3 and 4. Okay. Now, there's a lot of ways that we experience both kinds of threats today. And Peter and John are experiencing the first kind of threat, the kind of threat that is against them. Someone else is oppressing them. Okay. But they're going to have a choice throughout their life to become the second kind of threat, which is the oppressor, to respond in anger and to lash out at others. And so we're looking at them when they're threatened to see what do they do. Now, I wish that I had time, but we don't, when we only have, you know, 
25, 30 minutes together, we don't have time to read multiple chapters. You ought to go read Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 together today. And before I'm done, I'm going to give you, you're not going to like me for this, I'm going to give you about seven other chapters of Scripture that you ought to read this week, okay? It, it really wouldn't take you that long. But you ought to read Acts chapter 3 and 4 together, and you'd find this event. Peter and John, the same two men, are going up to the temple to pray, and they see a man who was born lame, and he's sitting outside the gates begging. They make eye contact with him. Now that could be a good sermon on its own. Anytime you see somebody begging, making a little eye contact is a human thing to do. One of the most oppressive parts of being homeless and poor is people say they become invisible and no one sees them. Peter solves that by looking at him in the eyes. It's in the text. Go read it. And then they say, we don't have money to give you today, but what we do have we will give you freely. And they heal him in the name of Jesus. It gets the attention of people because the guy gets up and he runs into the temple and he's jumping and running into the temple because the man wants to go pray too and he hasn't been able to get in there. And so he goes into the temple and all the people see it and they're amazed because they had known this man who was lame from birth and they listen to Peter and John. Peter and John begin to tell them about a man who died for his enemies and didn't return violence for violence but was vindicated by God in the resurrection and the people are amazed at this. They've never heard teaching like that. We've heard it so many times we become calloused to the fact that that was our original absolute truth. And they preach to them the resurrection. It makes the Jewish authorities furious. So they bring these guys in. They arrest them. They put them on trial. They ask them a bunch of questions. And this is the end result. Verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. You see, the authorities don't know what to do with an absolute truth like this. It isn't relativism, like it isn't meaningless truth. The authorities are scandalized by it because it is deeply meaningful truth. It's a concrete claim. Jesus was raised from the dead. He died for his enemies, didn't return violence for violence, and he was raised from the dead. They don't know what to do with that. Okay, but it, it also isn't moralism in the abusive kind because the appeal from that is not that now we should all get swords and go kill the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus. You see, Peter tried that. Don't you remember the events of Peter's life? In the garden, Peter tried that. He pulled out a sword. He swung at the attendant. I guess the guy, you know, whatever. He almost decapitates him. He cuts off his ear. Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on and says, sheath your sword, Peter. So the authorities don't know what to do with them. So it just says after further threats, they let them go. But you see, they resort to the only tool that they know, threats. And last week when we talked about empty promises, we talked very openly about Satan because we read the passage where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And it's one of the few times in Scripture that the devil manifests himself without any in-between person. The devil just comes out in the open and he says to Jesus, you know, you should make that rocks into bread. God would protect you if he really loved you. I can give you wealth and power and splendor. And Jesus combats that with scripture. Well, here, the enemy is veiled behind the people threatening. 
After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. You see an absolute truth about a, a, this man that laid down his life and was raised from the dead, and that truth turns into you actually start to see the lame people you actually start to pay attention to the beggars. You actually have something good to offer to the poorest members of society. And they matter to you. And you know what? Even if you aren't a healer who can heal lame people today, you can see the poor people in Bentonville. And you can do something about it. And if you believe in this man as your absolute truth who laid down his life for his enemies, you will start to see all kinds of people that you've always been blind to. All they can do is threaten them. The people were praising God for what happened. And look at verse 23. On the release, Peter and John went. And this is where Peter and John, and we know Peter has a, a tendency to draw swords and all that. They have a choice now how they're going to respond. Rally the troops, threaten back, you know, call the Holy Spirit, fire down. Are they going to have a, a moment like the prophet from the Old Testament who calls two she-bears down out of the forest to tear 40 and three of them asunder or whatever? Peter and John went back to their own people and they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And I want to read with you this most remarkable of prayers. No one learns to pray this way unless their absolute truth is a man who died for his enemies. Look at it. Sovereign Lord, they said, and I want you to note the word sovereign. Mark it in your Bible, circle it on the back of your bulletin, whatever. Look at the word sovereign. Sovereign Lord, they said. Most of you know me well enough by now. You know a little bit of my theology. You know that I do not believe in double predestination. Okay. I don't think that even needs to be a question, but let me say it. God didn't pick people for heaven and people for hell. But he's still sovereign. He's still in charge of everything. It's a great mystery. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see what their appeal is? God, you're all powerful. And you're in control. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote, Psalm 2, write down Psalm 2. Told you I'm giving you a bunch of chapters of Scripture today. Psalm 2. I'd like to read it in its entirety, I just don't have time, so we'll read the quote that they quoted. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed ones. So they quote Psalm 2, a psalm about kingship in Israel, about how David's on the throne. A song that everybody in Israel knew meant, don't mess with David, God's anointed. If you want God to be happy with you, kiss the Son of God. David was called the Son of God. The kings in Israel were the Son of God. And they quote, they say, God, you've always been in control. You've made all things. And through David and the Holy Spirit, you said the nations would rage against your anointed one. And then they said, indeed. Indeed. Pontius Pilate and Herod met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You see, they say, God, you're sovereign. We can tell you're sovereign because you said it was going to happen, that somebody would oppose your anointed one, and it happened. And Pontius Pilate stands for all the Gentile nations here. 
because he's the ruler, uh, you know, the governor that's appointed by Rome. And Herod stands for the people of Israel because he's the so-called king of Israel. And so everyone in the world embodied in those two people who oppressed and threatened Jesus have essentially rejected Jesus and fulfilled this prophecy. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Look at those words. You're sovereign. You decided beforehand this should happen. Peter and John say this. There was a great threat against Jesus. Our ultimate truth, our absolute truth, is he looked the threat in the eyes and laid his life down for his enemies. How could he do it? Because God had a plan beforehand to make it happen. We trust God's plan. We do not invent our own way of answering threats. Church, whatever threat is coming against you today, whatever threat in your personal life, whatever threat in our political world, whatever threat in your economic life, whatever threat to your physical health, whatever threat to your relationships, do not respond with your own imagination. Respond with your absolute truth. A man who looked the threat in the face and laid his life down for his enemies and didn't return violence for violence, but forgave them. Otherwise, we turn into wimpy, relativistic, backboneless, spineless, or we turn into abusers with clubs in our hands who bludgeon people to death with the gospel. Peter and John, real people, they can respond through prayer because they know God planned all this. We're going to trust his plan. Look at the last verse of their prayer, 29. Now, Lord, I just want you to circle these words. I want you to meditate on these words. This is your takeaway right here, okay? Now, Lord, consider their threats. You see what they don't do? Peter and John and the others do not waste time considering the threats. They don't go home and turn into cowards who fear the threats and say, maybe we ought to invent, you know, the onion or some underground newspaper, and maybe we should attack them with satire from the side. They don't go out and raise an army either. What they do is they say, God, we're going to let you consider their threats. What we want you to do for us is the second part of their prayer here. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God, you worry about the threats. You worry about the other nations. You worry about the politics and the economic implications and the health problems and all of those things. God, give us boldness to speak your word. And what is his word? His word is, there is a man who died for his enemies. And did not return violence for violence, but forgave them. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, when these men, and I've only got a few minutes to share this with you. When these men prayed this prayer, we know that it was answered for a few reasons. They said, God, we're going to take all the problems of our world, we're going to let you consider the threats, and we're going to focus on speaking the absolute truth about Jesus. 
which by the way, is the most crushing and the most loving message that has ever been. He said, we're going to speak this word with great boldness. And we know that their prayer was answered for two reasons. The first one is what happens in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And you say, I wish that happened today. Okay, this is the first reason they know their prayer was answered. The place was shaken. May or may not happen today. I haven't seen it yet. It could happen. But they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that can be tested. You pray a prayer like this in the face of whatever is threatening you, does it make you more holy or less holy? Do you become more filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control after praying this prayer, or do you become more filled with griping, hatred, bitterness, pessimism, failures, and wild throwing yourself into whatever kind of thing you use to medicate your life, drugs, alcohol, workaholism, whatever it is. When you're facing all the negative things in the world, are you becoming more and more oppressed by the threats, an oppressor of others, or more at peace in the Holy Spirit? It can be tested. And it says they spoke the word of God boldly. Does being threatened drive you deeper into your message? Does being threatened by what's going on in the world around you right now in 2019 make you more dependent on the absolute truth that there is a man who died for his enemies? If it makes you dependent on anything else, you're falling away, not towards Jesus. Here's the second reason we know that their prayer was answered. We know their prayer was answered because they lived long enough to write these documents. Peter wrote some letters called 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He didn't call them that, we do. John wrote some letters that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John wrote a vision given to him by the Holy Spirit and by Jesus that we call the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the last words that Jesus spoke to his church. It's incredibly important. We've undertaught it and underappreciated it. That's why we're doing a class on it on Wednesdays right now. Jesus said something to his church. We better understand what it is. Okay, they wrote these documents. And these documents prove that this prayer was answered. Because Peter and John did not become leaders of militias, and they didn't go into hiding. They didn't become spineless, and they didn't become oppressors. Instead, think about some of these chapters that they wrote. I told you I'm giving you more chapters. You need to go read these. 1 Peter 4. If you don't know who Peter became, read 1 Peter 4. That was the one we read for three weeks when we did a series called Public Faith, and we talked about do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Do you remember that? Does it sound familiar to anybody? If it does, say yes. If it doesn't, you broke the preacher's heart, right? Okay, all right, we forgive you. Peter wrote 1 Peter 4. He also wrote 2 Peter 3. You ought to write down 2 Peter 3. You know some of it. It sounds like a threat. All the elements are going to melt in the heat. The first world was destroyed by waters. This world will be, is held waiting to be melted by heat. 
But it isn't a threat in the traditional way because he says this, God is not slow keeping his promises. He is patient, wishing that all would come to repentance. Why does God withhold the threat of the end of the world and the day of the Lord? Because he's patient and loving. And just like we learned at the cross, he willingly lays his life down for his enemies, waiting for them to change. John wrote 1 John chapter 5. Write down 1 John chapter 5. It's all about the love of God. As he got older, he grew deeper into his absolute truth that real love is laying down your life for your enemies. He also wrote Revelation and Revelation 4 and 5. Write down Revelation 4 and 5. You want to know who John became after that prayer? In Revelation 4 and 5, he sees this vision given to him by Jesus of the heavenly throne room, and there's God and there's this lamb looking as if it had been slain, but standing at the center of the throne. And the lens by which we read Revelation is not the newsprint, but the lamb that was slain and risen. That's Jesus who died for his enemies. You see what these guys were doing with all of their life, and I've got to end here, so I've got to just give you these scriptures to look at and trust that you will go and read them and find that this is your absolute truth. They were looking into their past and they were asking, how will God fulfill the great promises of scripture? How is God going to fulfill Psalm 2? How's God going to fulfill Genesis 12 to 15 when he said to Abram, I'll give you all this land and I'll make your people like dust. It'll be so hard to count them and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. How is God going to fulfill 2 Samuel 7 when he says to David, I'll put a son of yours on the throne for all eternity and his kingdom will never end. How is God going to Fulfill Deuteronomy 18.15 when he says to Moses, there's a prophet like you that's going to raise up amongst your brothers and they need to listen to him. All of these promises that God had given, how is he going to bring them about? And John and Peter, real people of the resurrection morning, wrote through their documents and through their life and their acts of love that all of this was found in their absolute truth. Jesus dying for his enemies. And it kept them from being threatened. And it kept them from threatening. Jesus said, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Peter and John believed this. They had to believe it. Every time they went into prison, they believed it. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And you have to think, every time they went into prison, when John was on the island of Patmos, he had to think of himself. Is this the moment in which what Jesus said to me is going to come true? And then Jesus said, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. And what Peter and John found to be true over and over was that did not mean just going to heaven. It doesn't mean less than that. It means more. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Peter and John were on the cusp of losing their life in, in several ways, from the threats against them. But even more importantly, they were on the cusp of losing their identity. You see, if they give in to the threats and they become weak, spineless people, they have lost themselves. 
Their life means nothing. It's meaningless. They threw everything into this Lord, and now they're not willing to talk about him. Their life is meaningless. But if they become oppressors, if they fight back, if they draw the sword, if they raise militias, if they think this is all about us returning violence for violence, they have lost their life because life is only found in the sacrificial love of Jesus. They would have lost everything, their eternity. And so somehow, by losing their life, they preserved it. Not just their salvation, but what it means. See, the core of what it means to be alive in Jesus was preserved in them because their absolute truth was there's a man who died for his enemies and didn't return violence for violence, but forgave them. Would you stand this morning with me? As we sing this song, if you want to respond to that truth and that Lord, come on down and we'll pray with you this morning about whatever you may need.